Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Benefit bargaining, U.S. Congress seeking compromise with a smaller financial aid package. London lockdown tied to restrictions for the U.K. capital as COVID cases spike. And tech takedown, the EU talks big fines and breakups for bad behavior. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us this Tuesday. It's a day when the science is scintillating and the stimulus signals are at least more encouraging than we've seen for a while. Operation Warp Speed got vaccines to all 50 U.S. states and Puerto Rico in warp speed time yesterday. A brilliantly executed example, I think, of Operation Oomph. An essential part of that plan, the pharmacy giant Walgreens, they'll be joining us later to discuss all the logistics. Staying with the science, just released FDA data confirming another vaccine. This time Moderna's vaccine is more than 94% effective and qualifies for emergency use. An FDA panel meets to review the data on Thursday this week and then emergency use authorization is expected soon after. Meanwhile, we may be closer to a DC aid deal involving dropping the most contentious parts of that deal, dropping the size of the package too, unfortunately. All the details coming right up. Take a look at what we're seeing for US futures because they're reacting accordingly. The Dow and the S&P set to recover some of yesterday's losses. As you can see, investors pulled out of the economic reopening stocks Monday, piling into some of the tech stocks on fears, I think, of fresh U.S. shutdowns, perhaps even in New York City, according to the city's mayor. Europe, meanwhile, a bit mixed, as you can see, Germany and parts of the U.K. entering more stringent lockdowns again tomorrow. Fears now growing of a double-dip recession, possibly in Germany too. Compare and contrast this with solid economic data from China overnight. Retail sales there rising some 5%, the fourth straight monthly jump in fact, and the strongest year, strongest growth in a year for industrial production. That grew 7% in November. China's economy well and truly back to pre-pandemic levels, something we in the West can only dream about. And until that comes, people need financial aid. They need help. Let's get to the drivers. The stimulus debate so complex and so polarizing that lawmakers are now seeing double. Christine Romans joins me now. Sadly, Christine, not double the size. We're talking about no. two potential deals, dropping some of the more thorny, contentious parts, as we've long talked about. Liability protection for businesses potentially dropped, also dropping money for state and local governments, which is a real problem. You know, it shows you how these battle lines are drawn just so strongly here. They haven't been able to cross them. They really haven't. You know, the Democrats from the beginning have said state and local aid is essential here so that you don't have layoffs of public workers and public services, things that will happen soon without help. You know, the states can't balance their budgets. It's not like the federal government that can just, you know, borrow more money and keep spending in deficit. That's not what can happen to the states here. So they're going to need money. They're going to need aid. That's what the Democrats believe. There are Republicans who believe that's just blue state slush fund money. They've already gotten stimulus money. They can just use that. Also, Republicans 
Republicans are very keen on liability protections. And there are some Democrats who have said, looked at those provisions and those, at least those proposals and said, wait a minute, we shouldn't be protecting businesses that aren't keeping their workers safe. We should not give blanket shield to liability to companies who are not uh, being frugal and, fr- and prudent in how they're uh, managing their workplaces in, in an era of COVID. So you still have these two battle lines here that they have not been able to cross. Now, there's a feeling that with government funding running out an omnibus, omnibus bill deadline here on Friday, they'll be able to tack something onto that to get some relief. But this is not the big bipartisan push that many have been hoping for earlier this summer. Yeah, but we've long said something is better than nothing. And even I note the U.S. Chamber of Commerce coming out and saying, look, we were the ones as well that were pushing for those liability protections. Not if you're negligent, but some form of liability protection and them going ahead and saying, look, just get something done here, which I think makes sense. And, you know, it's Mark Zandi at Moody's was saying, look, we're already seeing the signs of recession. Even if we agree this, we're still going to have a tough few months. And for people that are struggling to feed their families, that are going to run out of benefits this month, there's still going to be a gap here. And you and I have talked about this for a long time, too. You know, the Biden administration, too, is saying that this whatever happens now is just a down payment on what has to happen uh, next year as well. I mean, if you think of it, and I think you agree with me, this really isn't stimulus we're talking about here. This is just stopping the, you know, stopping the, the, the economy from falling into a double dip recession. It's not necessarily spurring it forward. That's one way to look at this. Another way to look at it, though, I, I've started to hear from deficit hawks again uh, and and I, I laugh a little bit about this, who, you know, when you were spending borrowed money to give, you know, tax breaks to companies, weren't worried about deficits. But now in the middle of a crisis where American families are really hurting, are, are worried about deficits. They're pointing out that even even this this sort of revision now of the $700 billion range, if you got that, that's about the size of the first uh, the big bailout from the, the only big bailout, right? The original bailout in 2008, 2009. Think of that. So this is still a lot of money. But we're facing a crisis this big bigger than we faced in the Great Recession, much bigger, and it's still ongoing. Yeah, and we do agree. Christine, you and I both came into this crisis <laughs> as conservative economists, and now yes. we're like, just got to make sure we're in a position to recover. The vaccines are coming. Don't beat people up so badly that right. the recovery takes longer. Yeah, wish we could disagree, but we never do. <laughs> thank Smart <you>. woman. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, President-elect Joe Biden delivered an emotional call for unity last night after his victory was made official by the Electoral College. Jessica Dean reports. The integrity of our elections remains intact. And now it's time to turn the page. President-elect Joe Biden speaking directly to the American people after the Electoral College affirmed his decisive win delivering his most direct criticism of President Donald Trump's post-election legal challenges. In America, politicians don't take power. People grant power to them. And we now know nothing, not even a pandemic or an abuse of power, can extinguish that flame. All states where Trump challenged the vote count casting their electoral votes for Biden, despite unprecedented efforts from the president, and his allies. The people have spoken. It was a safe, fair, and secure election. Addressing Trump directly, Biden called the legal tactics extreme, accusing the president and his legal team of trying to subvert the will of the people. The presidency to a candidate who lost the Electoral College, lost the popular vote, and lost each and every one of the states 
whose votes they were trying to reverse. It's a position so extreme, we've never seen it before. Still, some Republicans on Capitol Hill refusing to acknowledge Biden's victory. Asked by CNN whether Biden is the president-elect, Senator Jim Inhofe responding, quote, I'm not going to comment on that. Senator John Kennedy also dodging, saying, quote, I don't have anything for you on that. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy have yet to recognize Biden's win as well. One retiring congressional Republican is changing his party affiliation in the last weeks of his term. It became clear to me that I could no longer be associated with the Republican Party, that leadership does not stand up and say, the process, the election is over. It's over today. The president-elect also calling out Republican lawmakers and state attorneys general after a failed last-ditch effort last week to get the Supreme Court to overturn the results in four swing states. This legal maneuver was an effort by elected officials and one group of states to try to get the Supreme Court to wipe out the votes of more than 20 million Americans in other states. The court sent a clear signal to President Trump that they would be no part of an unprecedented assault on our democracy. Jessica Dean reporting there to Europe now, where countries are issuing tough new COVID-19 restrictions, all of which come into effect on Wednesday. The Netherlands announced it's going to go into its strictest lockdown since the pandemic began. Schools and universities will largely close, along with non-essential shops and all public gathering places. Germany will impose a nationwide hard lockdown that will last until at least the 10th of January after a record number of daily infections and loss of life. France has implemented a new curfew that will last until at least January the 20th. Meanwhile, in the United Kingdom, London is returning to strict lockdown as cases in the city and surrounding areas soar. The tier three restrictions begin at midnight tonight and come as the government says a new variant of COVID-19 has been identified in the southeast of England. Salma Abdelaziz joins us now. Salma, great to have you with us. Just walk us through what these updated and tightened restrictions in London and the surrounding areas actually mean in practice. Well, Julia, after seeing a surge in cases here in London and the surrounding areas, as you mentioned, and a raise in hospitalizations uh, across this area, officials now say this city must go under England's toughest coronavirus restrictions. That means tier three. That means rules to curb people's social behaviors. So pubs and restaurants will be shut down. Nightlife will be closed. Households will virtually be banned from mixing together unless they want to stand in the freezing cold. But here's the catch, Julia. If you go into central London right now, all those shops are absolutely packed shoulder to shoulder. That's not going to change because all non-essential shops can remain open. Christmas shopping can continue. And here's the other catch. Schools can remain open as well. They only have a matter of days until the Christmas break. But this is concerning experts because the fastest rising infection rates are among people between the ages of 11 to 18. So students, uh, that's why the government has rolled out a testing program in some of the most affected neighborhoods here in London. But a lot of people worry that this isn't enough. You also have a special Christmas time dispensation coming up between the 23rd and the 27th that will be a further easing of restrictions. Julia? Okay, I'm now really confused, Salma. So it's pubs, clubs and restaurants that are going to close under this tightest tier of lockdown. But retail, 
you can still go into shops, you can still shop, but you just can't congregate in places perhaps where you'd socialize or eat. Is that what we're, is that what we're looking at? That's exactly what you're looking at. The idea behind these rules is essentially to allow the economy to continue so that businesses can allow people to shop. uh, Christmas shopping can continue. People can continue spending money while at the same time limiting people's social behaviors. The idea is, is you can't meet your friends at the pub and go drinking, but you can go to the store and buy them a gift. Julia? (laughs) It makes sense. I mean, it's trying to find that balance, isn't it, between protecting the economy and trying to keep COVID cases down. We'll see how well it goes. It's summer. Great to have uh, your explanation to have you with us today. Thank you for that. All right, to East Asia now. Also challenged, Japan now has more COVID patients in intensive care than ever before. A new poll shows more than 30% of people in Japan saying next year's Olympics should be cancelled. Meanwhile, over in South Korea, the government is considering whether to rise, raise coronavirus restrictions to the highest level. Paula Hancocks has more from Seoul. With close to 900 new daily coronavirus cases here in South Korea, officials are seriously considering raising those social distancing measures to the highest level. Currently in the greater Seoul area, where the majority of the outbreaks are happening, it is at 2.5. They are considering raising that to three. And if they do, that means that everyone has to work from home, apart from essential personnel. It means that all schools and all churches go online. Now, the prime minister said they don't want to miss the window for making that decision, but they also don't want to make a hasty decision, knowing the impact that is going to have on the economy. Also, hundreds of military personnel have been dispatched this week to health centres around the Greater Seoul area, and they will start to help with the contact tracing process. Now, meanwhile, in Japan, they have uh, just reported their highest number of patients in intensive care since the pandemic began, saying it is now at 588. Also this week, they have uh, temporarily cancelled the government travel subsidy scheme. This was really an effort to try and convince Japanese people to travel internally, uh, to boost domestic tourism and also to boost the economy. But they have decided uh, to temporarily put that on hold because of the high numbers uh, that they are reporting from that country. In addition, when it comes to the Olympics, an NHK poll uh, which uh, spoke to 1,200 people by phone found that 32% of those who replied believe that the Olympics should be cancelled. 31% believe that the Olympics should be postponed again. It's already been postponed from July of this year to July of next year. But the interesting figure is 27% of those who replied said it should go ahead. Now, just a couple of months ago in October, that number was 40%. So we're seeing that as the uh, the numbers of cases and those in intensive care rise in Japan, then there are more reservations about holding the Olympics. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. All right, coming up here on First Move is the first Americans receive the COVID vaccine outside clinical trials. The monumental task begins of wider inoculations. The man leading the charge at Pharmacy Walgreens joins us next. Plus, from pharmacies to petrochemicals, the CEO of state-owned Malaysian oil giant Petronas is on the show later too. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stock futures are green. Investors hopeful of a potential aid deal breakthrough over in Washington, D.C. We've got the S&P 500 set to bounce after, what, four straight losing sessions right now, higher by seven-tenths of one percent. Small cap stocks and tech continue to advance. The Russell 2000 up more than seven percent over the past month versus a relatively flat performance, actually, for the Dow and the S&P 500. A new Bank of America survey showing that a record 31 percent of fund managers are now in fact, long small cap stocks, the recovery trade. Bank of America says tech as the major pandemic winner remains one of the most crowded trades too, with managers holding on to a mere 4% in cash. And speaking of pandemic winners, deal-making too in the pharmaceutical sector today, Eli Lilly buying gene therapy firm Prevail Therapeutics in a deal worth more than $1 billion. Prevail shares currently up more than 85%. Wow, look at that pre-market. Eli Lilly also raising its full year guidance. That stock up some 1% too. Now, as you heard earlier, there are also positive developments on the vaccine front this morning. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, says it has no safety concerns about the Moderna vaccine that would stop it from issuing an emergency use authorization. Now, the U.S. pharmacy giant Walgreens will play a central role in the distribution of vaccines along with rival CVS. Walgreens will start delivering the drug in nursing homes by Christmas. And next year, vaccinations will be available in 9,000 stores. We're now joined by Rick Gates, the senior vice president for pharmacy and healthcare at Walgreens. He's also the pharmacy's COVID-19 vaccine lead executive. Rick, fantastic to have you on the show. I think it's safe to say you guys are the off-site clinic experts. You've done thousands and thousands and thousands of these over the years. Yeah, so, you know, uh, off-site clinics are something that are very core to what we've done for both flu, pneumonia, and other types of vaccines. In fact, we've done about 150,000 such clinics over the last five years, a lot of them in long-term care facilities. So although there's some nuances, this is something we're very, very good at, and it's uh, core to what we do. Talk to me about the nuances here, because I think the first thing is the fragility of this particular vaccine when we're talking about the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the cold storage requirements. What's that meant in terms of pre-planning and and getting ready to administer this drug? You you know, you need to think about the Pfizer vaccine, which does have more challenging storage uh, requirements, but that's something that's just we've had to plan for. So we are uh, putting out about 100 uh, ultra-frozen Uh, freezers, I'm sorry, ultra cold freezers in about uh, 100 sites across the U.S. and then dry ice as well. So we're planning for it. And it's all about the storage. Remember, after we store the vaccine, it comes back to preparing and shipping to the long term care facilities. That's a pretty standard process. We just have to worry about the storage, which which we're planned for. Talk to me about hiring too, because you've clearly had to ramp up hiring to have people available to administer this vaccine as well. Yeah, we've been hiring since the beginning of the pandemic, quite honestly. We started when it came with ramping of uh, COVID testing that we've done across the nation. 70% of those sites have been in underserved areas. So we've been hiring very consistently since then. I think as you look at broad general uh, vaccine uh, administration when you come into the spring, we are going to be hiring about 25,000 total team members, about 9,000 or so pharmacy team members, just to ensure that we're absolutely ready to, to administer the vaccine in a safe and efficient manner. Are you struggling to hire that many people or is there plenty of people available at this moment? 
you know, I, I think that we, we are set to go for long-term care facilities. We're very confident with what we have in front of us uh, that's going to start next Monday in earnest. Uh, I think as you look to the general population, we have some time to ensure that we are hired up and ready to go for that time. How much time do you think we have? I mean, the Health and Human Services Secretary is still saying, look, we can vaccinate 100 million people by the end of February. Can you hire enough people? Obviously, it's, it's yourselves and it's CVS that are going to be on the front lines of administering these drugs in addition to wherever else they can be done. Can you get the staff in order to be able to meet that timetable, assuming we've got the vaccine doses available too? Yeah, I, I would say the first question is going to be when will a vaccine be available <laughs> and in what quantity? So, so I think once we understand kind of when it's going to be available and in what quantities, you're going to see not just Walgreens or CVS. This is a, a pharmacy effort and we are all going to step forward and ensure that we're ready to help protect Americans across this nation. Rick, talk to me about education, about concerns. There was a, a Kaiser Foundation survey done and the release of the the results just this week. And they were suggesting actually that despite some of the concerns about a broad swathe of skepticism in the United States, actually, according to their survey, around 71 percent of people are open and willing to get this vaccine, which actually surprised me. It's significantly higher than the 63 percent that their survey suggested in September. Do we need to see more education, Rick? And how are you handling that, too, even as you go into these people's homes and and try and provide these vaccine doses. Yeah, I think vaccine hesitancy is something I think everybody needs to work on, and it has to be based in the science and the facts. And so we will be working closely with CDC and with the manufacturers to ensure that what we're educating the public on is factual and they can understand what they should expect when they receive the vaccine. And our pharmacists have always been there to really help with any vaccine, let alone the COVID vaccine, to really counsel on what to expect if they need to take a Tylenol as an example for a potential fever and just how they should really feel after taking the vaccine. What we've seen thus far shows that it was an efficient process to approval and we feel really confident with where we are on the safety protocol with the vaccine. So what are you actually telling people once you've administered the dose? Look, these are these are some of the symptoms you might experience. That's OK. That's what what you need to expect. Just to give our viewers a sense of, of what people are being told. Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it does come back to the, the normal response that you get from a vaccine that you're going to get and just letting them, them know the timing and expectations for that and how to treat the symptoms. And if symptoms uh, go beyond that, what they should do at that point in time. You know, look, from a hesitancy perspective, you know, we've had this for vaccines for a long time. You think even to flu this year, we had a record flu season and over uh, 50% of Americans still didn't receive a flu vaccination. So I think the question is going to be really important that we've got to educate the public on the importance of the vaccine and how we actually pivot out of the pandemic when we get enough herd immunity. I know that you've heard quite a bit about with vaccines administered across America. The other thing that worries me about this is data and making sure that people come back for the second dose. We were discussing on the show yesterday, you've got 50 percent efficacy after the first dose. It then ramps up to the 94, 95 percent efficacy once you get that second dose. Rick, how are you going to make sure that it's perhaps easier if you're going into care homes to go back and do the second dose? But again, when we get to more broader inoculations, making sure people come back. 
It's a great question, and quite honestly, uh, series completion, especially on this vaccine, is absolutely critical to get maximum uh, efficacy for uh, the consumer. So when you look at it, the long-term care facilities, we are going to schedule multiple clinics at that site to ensure that we not only get the first vaccination, but the subsequent vaccination for anybody that's wanting to get the vaccine. So we feel very confident that we have a plan in place for long-term care facilities. When you pivot to the general population, um, it's still gonna be, uh, we've got to share information with state registries, which is a requirement for all vaccines that we do. So a couple of things. One, if you come into Walgreens, we will absolutely ensure that you have a second uh, vaccine scheduled so that we can get you in that timeline. Otherwise, we have access to data that would show you what vaccine and what timeline that you got it, whether you're at Walgreens or somewhere else, and then we can get the second dose in an appropriate fashion. There are all sorts of reminders and things that we're going to do from calls from pharmacists to text messaging to emails to ensure that we have that second dose. And even uh, old fashioned cards will hand out. You know, we need to do everything we can to ensure that that second dose is administered and we are ready to do that. Yeah, brilliant. Please come back and, um, and get the full mandated uh, vaccine requirement. Rick, thank yes. you to you and your team for the work and thank you for making time for us today. Rick Gates, Walgreens COVID-19 Vaccine Lead Executive. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. All right, we're counting down to the market open, which is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running this Tuesday and we are higher as expected in early trade on stimulus and science hopes. Newly released FDA data today showing the Moderna vaccine more than 94% effective and no safety concerns that would prevent it from receiving emergency use status later this week. So fingers crossed on that one. Moderna shares up some 2% in early trade with their shares rising some 700% so far this year. Wow, and it's not just the science, of course. Emergency aid talks appear back on track again, a slim down bill gaining support in Washington, D.C. before lawmakers head home for the holidays. All this, of course, amid new economic fears. U.S. retail sales out tomorrow could show a negative print as more parts of the country announce fresh rollbacks. We've got the U.S. Federal Reserve beginning its last policy meeting of the year today, too. A policy statement due out tomorrow. Fed Chair Jay Powell sure to address the emergency aid situation tomorrow, too. A further nudge from his direction, I'm sure. Meanwhile, the EU putting more pressure on American tech giants. The European Commission is expected to unveil sweeping new regulations targeting big tech, including Google and Facebook. Anna Stewart joins us now with the details. So-called gatekeepers, that's what they're going to be uh, called, I believe, Anna. But break it down for us. Two different acts tackling two different things from the EU. Walk us through it. Yes, and we're expecting that press conference to start any moment. This will be the latest salvo from the EU, really, in its big battle against tech. And as you say, it's on two fronts, two separate pieces of legislation. The first, the Digital Markets Act. Now, that will really tackle competition issues, trying to prevent the so-called, as you said, gatekeeper firms like Google and Amazon with big dominance in the market from squeezing out smaller rivals unfairly. The second, the Digital Service Act, quite interesting, is going to make large social media firms responsible for harmful content that is uploaded to their platforms by users with big penalties for those companies that flout it. Julia? We're going to pick up on those big penalties in a second, but the UK government announcing something similar, the online harms bill. Is that the same thing? Illegal behaviour online, they're going to crack down? 
It's interesting, isn't it? The UK and the EU aren't really in harmony when it comes to trade talks, but they are on point today with this. Yes, this is very much like the second half uh, of the EU legislation, the online harms bill. Again, shifting that responsibility onto firms, making them responsible for what users experience in terms of the darker sides of the web. You know, we can talk about tech as being too big to fail. We can also talk about them being too big to care, quite frankly, Anna. Talk to me about those big fines. Are they enough to make these big tech firms care enough to change their behavior or to act? This is the thing. How big are the fines and will they actually stop companies in the act because currently fines take years and years and years and they're very much retrospective. Now we're talking about some major fines. In terms of the online content legislation, for the EU a fine could be up to 6% of global turnover and in the UK that would be up to 10%. So for a firm like Facebook, that could potentially be a fine of up to $7 billion. So that's pretty sizable. In addition to that, on the EU side of things, there are other penalties. For instance, they could force a company to be broken up within the market. In the UK, they could simply block a service from operating in the UK altogether. Before we get too excited, though, Julia, these are proposals. They both have to go through their respective parliamentary processes. And as we know, that can take months can take years and of course all of these proposals could get watered down in that process what's your bet anna months or years <laughs> i'm gonna go for years <laughs> look yeah, at brexit so am i <laughs> yeah thank you anna great to have you with us um, sadly once again on this show we agree all right moving on we're learning more today about one of the worst cyber attacks on the u.s government in years U.S. officials believe Russian-linked hackers were behind a data breach of multiple agencies, including the Departments of Homeland Security, Agriculture and Commerce. Well, now the Washington Post reports the State Department and the National Institutes of Health were breached as well. CNN Tech reporter Brian Fung is in Washington. It's all very alarming, Brian. What more do we know about this? Well, Julia, this is a very concerning attack. Uh, And let me just explain why in a few brief steps here. First, um, as you mentioned, you know, there are a number of U.S. federal agencies that are affected here, including the Department of Homeland Security, the Agriculture Department and the Commerce Department. Um, But and those are just the ones we know about. Uh, As we continue to hear more and talk to more officials, we're going to learn more about what, what agencies may have been affected by this. Uh, and, you know, according to um, to experts who CNN have spoken to, uh, a, a number of agencies were also uh, clients of SolarWinds, the tech company that was, uh, you know, at the heart of this vulnerability, including the U.S. Postal Service, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, the National Institutes of Health. Um, so there could be a whole range of other agencies involved here uh, that we simply have not confirmed whether or not they were affected. Uh, and the cybersecurity company FireEye uh, has said that other companies in the tech, telecom, energy, and consulting sectors may also have been affected by this vulnerability. So overall, a very concerning, widespread and a potentially historic breach here. Uh, another reason to be concerned about this particular hack is that uh, the, the culprit behind it, U.S. officials believe that Russia-linked hackers may have been behind this attack. Uh, it's not just cyber criminals looking for a payday here. We're talking about sophisticated government-linked hackers with a motive to gather information um, for unknown uh, ends. 
And, and then finally, of course, Julia here, uh, the, the how is really important. Um, this is, again, not just your average cyber criminal looking to do a smash and grab job, uh, taking advantage of, of indiscriminate targets or indiscriminate methods um, you know, to make a bit of money. Here we're talking about um, very specific and targeted attempts to go after um, you know, specific victims uh, looking for very specific information using um, software or malware mm. that was loaded into these, these companies via uh, legitimate, what appeared to be legitimate software updates. So all these companies were doing, and, and government entities were doing uh, exactly the right things, patching their systems, uh, keeping everything up to date, and they still were managed to, to be able to be breached by this attack, which is partly why uh, it's so concerning um, you know, who else may have been, been affected by this uh, who were simply doing exactly what they were supposed to do? I mean, you know, when cybersecurity experts like FireEye, who we've had on this show, also say, look, we were hacked too. Um, you know, this is a sophisticated operation. Brian, very quickly, we heard news that Google, YouTube went down yesterday. Any connection or are these two separate events? Well, at this stage, there's no indication that these two uh, issues are linked. Uh, Google said that its outage yesterday was uh, the result of some account authentication issues on its end. Um, so far, we've heard no evidence to suggest that uh, Google's outage was related in any way to this SolarWinds uh, vulnerability. Perfect. Thank you for being on top of it. Brian Fung, great to have you with us in Washington, D.C. there for us. Thank you. All right, up next, the International Energy Agency warns that it will take months before the vaccine rollout begins to boost demand for oil. We speak to the CEO of Malaysia's state-owned oil giant next. Welcome back to First Move. The International Energy Agency has trimmed its oil consumption forecast for 2021. The agency says it will be months before we see demand recover, with fallout from the pandemic set to last longer than expected. It's bad news for Malaysia's state-owned oil and gas giant Petronas. It says volatile prices and low demand make this a challenging environment for energy companies. And joining us now is Tinku Mohamed Taufik. He's president and group chief executive officer of Petronas. So fantastic to have you on the show. Clearly, it's been a challenging year with the backdrop of the pandemic, not only for energy companies, of course, but also for, for nation states as they try to cushion their economies. What has it meant for your business? Oh, well, first of all, let me thank you, Julia, for having me. I think, uh, what descriptions can you throw this way uh, to describe the pandemic? Unprecedented, challenging, every adjective has been thrown this way. I think none, uh, none have done it justice. We have really f not yet fully fathomed the impact of the pandemic. And I, I think uh, the descriptions we gave in our outlook for the rest of the year are a fair and fitting description. Indeed, it is going to be very difficult to read the rest of the year for us. And I think even for the next 12 to 18 months, the rest of the industry is still doing a lot of guesswork. Uh, 73 million cases, uh, we've got decent recovery rates. Malaysia itself, uh, well, has been hit quite badly, our finance ministry had estimated anywhere between 400 to 500 million dollars of economic activity disrupted on a daily basis when we had the full lockdowns. Demand all but disappeared. And uh, of course, within this region, uh, at a time where we were already flush with product and flush with natural gas, I think the world knows the market saw uh, Brent going to $12 as far back uh, yeah. in April and uh, in negative territory for WTI. 
Uh, much like every other player, uh, our first paramount concern was to make sure our continuity of operations wasn't put under threat at all. Uh, reliability, of course, we need to make sure that the lights could still be switched on. Uh, we have 48,000 people in the Petronas family, as I like to call it, uh, working with uh, a universe of over 44,000 uh, vendors along a supply chain. Immediately when the pandemic was declared, of course, we hunkered down. Four key focus areas emerged, looking at our, uh, first, of, first and foremost, of course, the safety and the health of our employees. Uh, the corporate command center helped that. We had a pandemic preparedness center uh, re response team working to uh, deploy our team and deploy responses as and when uh, required because it was never going to be business as usual. Uh, getting mm. a team onto an offshore platform, working at plants, uh, there's never going to be uh, the simple same way that would, we, we could do it in, in the past. Uh, of course, we had to deal with the immediate challenge of liquidity, uh, customers, counterparts, the entire supply chain had to be deconstructed and reconstructed. And of course, uh, giving, giving this a lot more of a longer term outlook, we also had to plan already while we were still reeling from the impact of the pandemic, how we would uh, rebound and recover post the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, taking a step back, uh, in consultation with the board and, and the executive leadership team decided we had no choice. We needed to do what everybody else did, but also taking it a step further, reshape our portfolio to respond to uh, what is an already an imminent energy transition. Um, we also realized that given the way that we operate and how we had to respond beyond this pandemic, uh, retooling our human capital equation was going to be a key part uh, of, of the solution uh, to remain uh, both relevant and sustainable beyond uh, this this current very challenging period. Yeah, Tafik, uh, I'm going to stop this... you there because you've you've said so much and there's so many questions that you've uh, you've could have given me yeah. while you're talking. Um, just <laughs> for now, yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, it's fascinating to hear because even just in operationally, just protecting your people in this kind of environment, particularly given how many people you've got in the family, it's um, it's huge. Just in terms of what you're predicting in terms of oil prices going forward, I believe you've, you're sort of basing it on a $40 oil price. Do you even Indeed. break even at a $40 oil price? Because I've read over the last five years, you provide the government with, what, 15% of their revenue. So when you're talking about a pivot to cleaner energy, and I, I totally understand that we've all been sent the message here that that has to be part of the plan. How do you balance those two responsibilities? Because that takes investment. Well, our government is a shareholder, and like any shareholder, it wants value creation. And of course, right. it would like to have returns on a more regular, more transparent pathway. Um, I think the challenge is not that far departed from any listed company. I think uh, shareholder advocates or uh, more evangelical shareholders would say, if you don't have anything to do with the money in hand, uh, give it back to us. Uh, I think in this case, we've been managing the pathway to growth servicing the returns requirements. We are state-owned, but at the end of the day, we were incorporated as a company. So value creation remains at the center of, uh, of our being. It is our reason for being. And I think at the end of the day, uh, having an outlook, 40 to $50, yes, we're still breaking even. Uh, the, there are some plays which are very, very challenging right now, which is why I mentioned earlier, Julia, that looking at our portfolio and reshaping it, making these tough decisions, drawing a thick red line where certain assets just don't make sense within this foreseeable $40 to $50 future will need to be relooked. Do we fix it? 
Do we reduce our risk and partake uh, of less exposure in it? Or do we divest it outright? And these are questions which are constantly ongoing. Uh, portfolio optimization sounds like a cliche for, for, some, uh, for some businesses, but it is something that needs to be always something that needs which, to be always Which placed. assets do you it's, shed in that environment? Because I couldn't agree more with you. You have to increase efficiency yeah. somehow and you have to do it quickly. Yeah. Which assets do you yeah. shed in this case? And are you already thinking uh, about that? Because you're, you're making investments in India, I know, and in Singapore in solar. So you're, you're making investments mm -hmm. in the cleaner energy providers and technologies. Hydrogen, I know, is another one. But what do you shed today in this scenario? The, the board and me have come to a very vigorous deliberation. It's quite, quite clear what, what we need to retain. Um, those <laughs> that clearly make uh, cash flow positive uh, contribution, uh, those which have uh, a strategic play as part of a larger integrated value chain. But I think more importantly, uh, a lot of the assets we have in the portfolio will need to give us a clearer pathway uh, to first cash, i.e. In, in our context, first gas and first oil. Um, we need to make sure that fiscal regime still makes sense for us. And so the challenge is one where we have to look not only at assets being able to help us uh, from a cost to serve dimension, i.e. getting it to customers and clients uh, within the market tolerances. Uh, you know it can get extremely challenging when spot prices for natural gas in Asia uh, were, for the better part of the year, mostly under $4 per MMBTU. Um, yes. We also have to make sure that uh, at a, in a $40 to $50 scenario, it now also has to be cleaner. Emissions need to be accounted for because customers not only ask for the cheapest, they're also asking for the cleanest. So there's already a couple of lenses that we apply in, in, in determining what we keep and what we have to either fix or ultimately, and then when the hard decision comes, divest. But you're ready to do that and the financials are sound. Uh, the financials are sound so far and uh, we do believe that uh, we can withstand the shocks coming. Uh, but if this continues, as I mentioned to you, the, the sheer scale of uh, economic disruption uh, brought about by the pandemic, believe me, I think I join a litany of many other uh, industry CEOs who really are praying that the vaccine comes readily accessible next year. I know. And as soon as possible. Sir, it's been brilliant Indeed. to have you on the show. Come back and talk to us soon because we're just scratching the surface and I know it's challenging. You stay safe, too. And uh, great to have you on the Thank show. You. The president and group chief Thank executive you, officer of Patronus. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. Gaming stocks have been true pandemic winners, and winners as we've all turned to various forms of home entertainment. The industry, though, was already booming, and the city of Dubai believes demand will only continue to grow, as Anna Stewart reports. Dr. Noah Rafford's job as Dubai's futurist in chief is to spot the next big thing in tech. A key role in a city betting big on the likes of AI, blockchain and VR for its economic development. Our job is to help identify what is exciting, what is new, what has potential for Dubai's economy and for Dubai's culture and indeed potentially for the UAE to help advance into the next generation of industry, of society, of technology. Rafford is at Dubai's Jitex conference, the only live in-person tech event of the year and he's checking out some of the world's most promising technologies. 
Everything from autonomous robots to flying vehicles and virtual reality systems are on display. But the next big tech to really change our lives, according to Rafford, it's video games. This might seem strange. Why do we think video games are the future? I like to say video games are the new Hollywood because today, video games are already three times larger than the film, television, and music industries combined. Video gaming is a $150 billion plus industry with over 2.5 billion gamers worldwide. Now, that's exciting, but then it gets really exciting when you start to add on in-game economies. Take Fortnite, for example, one of the world's most popular games. It's free to play, and yet every month it makes hundreds of millions of dollars. Why? What are people doing? They're buying clothes, they're buying guns, they're buying dances, they're buying fashion. Some 80% of gaming industry revenue comes from free-to-play games like Fortnite. Rafford says the gaming community has rapidly evolved into more than just a money-making machine. It's become a culture where players can meet friends, express themselves and develop lifelong careers. Dubai is part of the fastest growing regions in the gaming industry. Rafford believes the future potential of gaming will soon disrupt societies and economies around the world. Ultimately, I firmly believe that the games economy, as in the economy that takes place in games, from fashion to business creation to intellectual property generation to just the exchange of services and goods, is going to be as big if not bigger than the physical economy. It's a growing economy, Rafford says Dubai is keeping an eye on and positioning itself to capitalize on in the near future. Anna Stewart, CNN. I love it. EU watching in windy Windsor to a digital Dubai. We're keeping Anna Stewart busy today. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.